Well, good morning. For those of you who are just uh, relatively new here, my name is Brett. I'm one of the pastors of this church. And uh, one thing we do like to do here is preach through various books of the Bible. And uh, we are just now this morning finishing up the book of Nehemiah. So if you do have a Bible with you today, please turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13, we won't, uh, won't, read the whole, um, won't read the passage right away here, but when we do, we'll read the entire chapter. Nehemiah chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Let's pray as we get going here. Well, Lord, we do just pause and recognize that you and you alone are the good shepherd. And that you, Lord Jesus, as the Good Shepherd, you lead your people, make them lie down in green pastures. You lead them beside still waters or waters of rest. You restore their souls. And Lord Jesus, we would all just look to you now and say, yes, we need that. We've all been going through different things and Lord Jesus, we need you. We need you now. We don't just need head knowledge about you, we need you. Your person, Lord Jesus Christ, your healing presence. For all the the trials, the the difficulties, the pains of the last week, the last month, we'd all just say, Lord Jesus, help us. We're broken people, we need your help. And we do thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the good shepherd, not us. We're sheep. (laughs) Sheep don't know much. You are good. And it's in your hands to take care of your sheep, and you've promised to do it. So we just thank you and just entrust ourselves to you now, Lord Jesus. And we know that one of the ways that you work in your people's hearts and lives is through your word. And so we just submit to you now here in the last bit of this book of Nehemiah and say, Lord, will you work through this portion of your word for our good? And even now, through your word, cause us to lie down in green pastures and, and to rest beside still waters, Lord. And, and will you restore our souls now? And we do just thank you for it, Lord. We commit it to you now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, most of you have probably heard the poem, Casey at the Bat, uh, by Ernest Thayer. The Mudville baseball team in trouble, uh, down four runs to two, uh, bottom of the ninth inning, two outs, but uh, Flynn and Jimmy Blake get on base, which brings mighty Casey to the bat. And man, all of Mudville just knows that mighty Casey will win the game with a home run. And man, everyone who reads the poem the first time, you just know mighty Casey will win the game with a home run. Everything, man, in the poem just builds towards this inevitable climax. And then you read this. The sneer is gone from Casey's lips. His teeth are clenched in hate. He pounds with cruel violence his bat upon the plate. And now the pitcher holds the ball, and now he lets it go, and now the air is shattered by the force of Casey's blow. Oh, somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light. And somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. And believe it or not... At the end of the book of Nehemiah here, you do kind of get a similar ending to the story. You know, as you read through this book, you would maybe expect some sort of grand slam here at the end. Uh, These events here in chapter 13, man, these events are the final historical events in the entire Old Testament. Uh, This book is not the last book in the Old Testament, but these events are the last events in the entire Old Testament in the Bible. And you just expect in Nehemiah 13 that the events of the Old Testament would maybe end with some sort of a bang. Everything in this book as well has, has just seemingly been building up to this inevitable grand slam that will happen right at the end. 
just to, just to catch us up to, see, to, to speed with what's gone on so far in this book, before Nehemiah was born, the Jews were dragged into exile by the Babylonians who, who invaded Jerusalem, tore down the city wall, took the Jews to Babylon. But the king of Persia, he later allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem and Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall around the city, which he did in Nehemiah chapter 6. It was a huge success. But then Nehemiah just started working to rebuild the people, and he also found some huge success there. In Nehemiah chapter 8, the people saw their sin. They saw that they had been exiled because of their sin. So in Nehemiah chapter 9, the people then confessed their sin. Nehemiah chapter 10, they then made all these promises to God that they would do much better in the future. In chapter 12, right before this, the people just celebrated this massive party, this dedication dedication ceremony dedicating their new wall everything is seemingly getting better in this book and you'd expect at the end here some sort of climactic grand slam you'd expect nehemiah here just to say hey they all lived happily ever after the end but you don't get that here at the end of nehemiah you 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 get something here More like a bottom of the ninth, two on, two out, great opportunity to win the game, strike out. You know what you get in Nehemiah 13? You get lots and lots and lots of failure, the end. Let's go ahead and read it. Nehemiah 13 verse 1. On that day, Nehemiah says, they read from the book of Moses. These are the people in Jerusalem. They read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, well, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levite singers and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priest. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, Nehemiah says, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers and brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites. And as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zachur, son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in heaps of grain, and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, and I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. 
As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod. Ammon and Moab and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and, yes, pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God. Because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites, thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Amen. Thus ends the book of Nehemiah. It's a long chapter there. We will not cover all that in detail, and you can be thankful for that. <laughs> when, when you boil this chapter down, man, you, you basically just get a bunch of failures. It's really one big strikeout is what this chapter is. A little background here will help us to understand the failures. All the failures in this chapter, they are failures to obey God's old covenant laws. A thousand years or so before these events right here, back in the book of Exodus, the Jews were still in the wilderness, and God gave to Moses and to the Jews some old covenant laws, the Ten Commandments and a bunch of other laws. And God said that if the Jews obeyed his laws, well, they'd be blessed by him. But if they disobeyed his laws, well, they would be cursed by him. And what were the curses that they would receive if they disobeyed? Well, they would receive curses like this, Deuteronomy. 28:49 The Bible says the Lord will bring a nation against you if you disobey a nation from far away from the end of the earth swooping down like the eagle they shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land and you shall be plucked off the land <laughs> and the Jews before Nehemiah well they had received those curses right there they had disobeyed God's old covenant laws, and so God ultimately brought a nation against them. Babylon swooped in like an eagle. The high and fortified walls around the city came down, and they were plucked off their land into exile. The curses of God's law. But man, God had been merciful to these people, and even there in exile, he remembered them. He removed them from exile, brought them back to the land here in the days of Nehemiah, built a new wall around them right here. And these people here now, back in chapter 10 of this book, well, they made promises to God that they'd do better now according to his old covenant laws. The people said this back in Nehemiah 10, 29. They said, we now, oh God, we enter into a curse and an oath, we will walk in your law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and we will observe and do all the commandments of our, the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. Oh, Lord God, we see what happened to us when we disobeyed you. We will do better now, oh God. But now chapter 13, this is just a few verses later, after Nehemiah chapter 10, and it's just failure after failure to uphold God's old covenant laws. 
every single promise they made back in chapter 10. They now break it in Nehemiah chapter 13. Mighty Casey has struck out in a big way in Nehemiah 13. We see four distinct failures here according to God's old covenant laws. The first failure here has to do with separation. Verse 1 there says that the book of Moses was now read to the people. So the people were gathered together again somewhere in the city, maybe a big square in the city. And like they've done many times in the Bible, someone has read now the book of the law to them. The first five books in your Bible. Those books are being read to the people as they're gathered here. And verse 1 says that the people found written in those old covenant laws, they found written that no Ammonite or Moabite, should enter the assembly of God. They were reading Deuteronomy 23. That's what they heard. Verse 3, the fifth book of the Bible, it says this, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet with you, meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam to curse you. Here's the story there. The Jews back in the past traveling through the wilderness trying to find the promised land. Well, they asked at at, at two different times. They they asked both the Ammonites and then the Moabites if they could pass through their lands peacefully. And both of the countries said no to Israel and actually came out to fight against Israel. The Moabites even asked a man named Balaam to curse the Jews. And God was not pleased with those two countries. So God gave that old covenant law back in Deuteronomy 23 that no Ammonite or Moabite could enter the assembly. No no Ammonite or Moabite could become a Jew, could become part of the people of God. Now listen, it it, it wasn't that, that no Ammonite or no Moabite could ever become part of the people of God. They could if they first renounced their false gods and just embraced God as their only God. Ruth in the Bible was a Moabite woman. And she did become a Jew after she renounced her false gods and embraced God as her only God. So, so the Jews on this occasion gathered here. They, they hear this old covenant law concerning separation uh, really from idolaters. And, and they then obey it. For the most part, you look at verse 3, as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. So so they separated here from Ammonites, from, from Moabites, from all foreigners who had not yet given up their false gods. But the Jews did not separate completely from foreign idolaters. Now you may not catch it at first glance, but if you read on in this chapter, after the people separate, Nehemiah in verse 4, he starts talking about this high priest at the time named Eliashib, who was related to a man named Tobiah. And if you've been following through this book, you know that Tobiah, throughout this entire book, has been one of Nehemiah's worst enemies. The two main enemies in the book, Sanballat and Tobiah, Dr. Evil and Mini-Me, they've resisted Nehemiah from the very start of this book. And Nehemiah now finds that Eliashib, the high priest, has given his relative Tobiah, one of his worst enemies, a place in the temple. Tobiah is now living in the house of God. Now, Nehemiah was not in Jerusalem when this happened. Verse 6 says that he was back in Persia, or also called Babylon at the time. He was back there in Persia visiting King Artaxerxes. The king, back in chapter 2 of this book, Artaxerxes, he was the one who initially told Nehemiah he could go to rebuild the walls. So he had allowed Nehemiah to come here to do this thing, and Nehemiah has now gone back to Artaxerxes, probably to give him a report of what had gone on there in Jerusalem. Nehemiah might have been gone for months. And when he returns, he finds Tobiah, 
one of his worst enemies living in the temple. And I want you to see how Nehemiah described Tobiah back in chapter 2. Verse 10, he called him Tobiah the Ammonite. So catch the point. The people hear this old covenant law that they should separate from Ammonites, Moabites, foreigners who won't renounce their false gods, and the people do it. They separate. But the high priest at this time, the top dog in the Jewish religion, he has extended an invitation to his relative Tobiah, an Ammonite. And Tobiah is now living in the most sacred place in all of Jerusalem, in the temple. A fly in the ointment, a worm in the apple. This is a serious breach against God's old covenant laws. And Nehemiah sees it, he knows it. What does he do? Look at verse 8. And I was very angry, Nehemiah says. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. (laughs) You talk about cleaning house here. (laughs) Man, this was a stern and probably also a very public eviction of this man. J.I. Packer says this. He says, we may imagine here pieces of furniture, the smaller ones at any rate, flying out of the door. And it may be that Tobiah had to stand there spluttering while this strong arm eviction went on. And man, you think about Nehemiah here in in this chapter, now that he's returned from from Persia. Derek Kidner says this about Nehemiah at this time. If, If on his first visit to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, if he'd been a whirlwind, well, on his second visit after returning from Persia now, Nehemiah was all fire and earthquake to a city that had settled down in his absence to a comfortable compromise and you you just picture nehemiah all fire and earthquake evicting tobiah cleansing the chambers that is a small picture that is just a small foreshadowing of jesus who would do a very similar thing in the future angrily cleansing the temple of his day of the money chambers. Both Nehemiah and Jesus, a zeal for God's house. So that's, that's one failure here regarding these old covenant laws, this failure concerning separation. The second failure has to do with tithes. You know, God's old covenant laws, that they commanded the Jews to give tithes and offerings to the temple in order to support the worship in the temple, in order to support the priests and the Levites who lived off of those tithes and, and offerings. And the, the Jews in the past, well, they had failed to support the temple. They'd failed to obey those commands of God concerning the tithes and, and offerings. It was one of the reasons the Jewish people went into exile. And the Jews here now in chapter 10, man, they promised to do better concerning these tithes and offerings. They said this back in 1039. They said, oh God, we will not neglect the house of God now. We saw what happened when we did. We won't do that. But man, here in chapter 13, failure. You look at verse 10. Nehemiah says, I also found out that the portion of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. The people, Nehemiah returns here, and he finds the people. Nobody's giving tithes and offerings to the temple anymore. It's so bad that the Levites don't have anything to eat. They can't live. So they flee from the temple to go find subsistence elsewhere. So Nehemiah here, all fire and earthquake now, uh, he confronts again, if you look at verse 11, so I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. So a, a second failure concerning God's old covenant law. And the third failure, well, it has to do with the Sabbath. Back in the Ten Commandments, the Old Covenant Law, the Fourth Commandment, 
God commanded the Jews that they honor the Sabbath day, that they would just take one day in seven where they would do no work and trust God to provide for them. And the Jews in the past had failed to do that. It was another reason they went into exile. So the Jews here now in chapter 10, they promised to do better. With the Sabbath, they said this in 1031, they said, And if the peoples of the land, O God, if they bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. But man, now here we are, just a few verses later. Nehemiah's been gone, he comes back. What does he find? Failure. You look at verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. And bring in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself! Exclamation mark. Jim Boyce says this. He says, like a trickle through a dike. Commercial activity on the Sabbath had probably begun slowly. Out in the countryside with the farmers harvesting grain, treading grapes on the Sabbath. But it had grown steadily stronger. Having harvested their grain and made their wine, the farmers next brought these to the city to be sold again on the Sabbath. Following quickly on their heels were traders from Tyre who had fish and all kinds of merchandise for the markets which took place on the Sabbath. So Nehemiah, fire and earthquake Nehemiah, he confronts it again. You look at verse 17. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing you're doing? Profaning the Sabbath day, did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And Nehemiah then orders the gates to be locked on the Sabbath so no traders can get in. And when the traders sit outside the gates the next couple of Sabbaths, well, Nehemiah flexes on them <laughs> just a bit. If you look at verse 21 again, I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I'll lay hands on you. And Nehemiah, do you think there's a little comic humor in what he says here? <laughs> From that time on, they did not come into the Sabbath. I flexed and they listened to me. Uh, so, man, a third failure concerning God's old covenant law. They promised back in chapter 10, we'll do better. We don't want to be exiled again. And just a couple chapters later, they're failing every time. And there's a fourth and final failure, and it has to do with marriage. In the old covenant laws... That God had given to Moses, God warned the Jews not to marry foreigners. It was not a racial prejudice. God was not saying, hey, Jews are better than every other race, so don't marry outside of the Jewish race. He wasn't doing that. It had to do with idolatry. When two people back then got married, they adopted one another's gods. They just put both their gods up on the family uh, fireplace, and they worshiped both those, those gods. And God did not want the Jews to adopt other gods. He didn't want them to worship the false gods of their foreign spouses. So God told them not to marry foreigners. It wasn't that they could never marry foreigners. They could if again those foreigners renounced their false gods and, and accepted God as their only God. And that was Ruth, a Moabite woman who married a Jew after she renounced her false gods and accepted God as her only God. But when foreigners, when they, man, when they retained their false gods, mixed marriages were forbidden by God. And man, the Jews in the past, they, they again, they had failed that. It was another reason why they went into exile. And so these Jews here, gathered here, back in chapter 10, they had promised to do better concerning marriage. They said this in 1030. They said, we will not give our daughters, O God, to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And yet here in chapter 13, it's just a couple verses later, just a few months later, it's failure. Look at verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. 
And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. So man, just catch it. Nehemiah's gone. Uh, While the cat's away, the mice will play, I guess. Uh, He's gone, and here they go. They just begin to intermarry. They're violating the Sabbath. They're not bringing tithes and offerings. They're not doing anything that they promised they would do. They're violating the old covenant commands that had sent them into exile the first time. And they're doing it all again. And man, with this marriage thing, you thought Nehemiah was all fire and earthquake in his previous confrontations. Oh my word, look at verse 25. And I confronted them. The third time we've heard the word confront in this chapter, I confronted them and I cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. He'd had a tough time doing that with me. Oh, you don't laugh at that. That's not funny. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. We'll get back to that confrontation in just a second. That is four clear failures now, right in a row, regarding God's old covenant laws. These people have tried to some degree to uphold God's laws. Nehemiah has tried to get them to uphold God's laws, resorting to some very extreme confrontational measures, uh, threatening, cursing, beating, pulling hair. Very hard to know what to make of his confrontations here. Some people think that Nehemiah was fully justified in his actions. No sin at all. And that is possible. Jesus confronted in holy, sinless anger, chasing people from the temple, overturning tables. Jesus warned people, even threatened people at times, very, very sternly. It is possible that Nehemiah's actions here were just holy anger. There's a righteous indignation of God concerning his old covenant laws. Other people, however, think Nehemiah might have been sinful here, confronting uh, not just in holy anger, but also in sinful anger. Nehemiah was human. And all of the little human heroes in the Bible, they all have human flaws. And that's to remind us they're, they're not the real heroes in the Bible. Nehemiah had human flaws, and it's possible that Nehemiah here, uh, just like you and me, maybe he was confronting in, in some holy anger, but also just personal sinful anger. He just can't believe these people aren't listening to him. What in the world are you doing? And he goes after him here. Man, we don't know. But listen, you step back and you look at the way Nehemiah is confronting people here in this chapter. There is one thing that is crystal clear. Nehemiah is very, very concerned about these people's violations of God's old covenant laws. He is very, very concerned. He's doing anything and everything he can. Threatening, cursing, beating, pulling hair to get these people to toe the line. And why? I think it's just because he knows what happens when God's people don't toe the line. He knows in the past, the people of God, they they didn't uphold God's old covenant laws and the curses fell. Exile. And God has been so merciful to them, but if they continue to disobey God's old covenant laws now, what will keep the curses from falling again? So man, he does everything he can here to get the people to obey. He threatens, he punishes them when they don't obey. He is punishing people when they don't obey. And, and listen, just, just stop and think about this for a second. Do you realize that Nehemiah's actions here, they are actually a pretty good picture of what God's law does to people when they disobey. It's really a good picture of what God's law does when people violate God's holy laws. When people violate God's old covenant laws, man, God's law, it then threatens. God's law then punishes the violators. The law 
does not show mercy. The law in and of itself cannot show mercy. The law doesn't look at the violators and say, oh, I was kidding. I know you meant well. Don't just forget about that punishment thing. No big deal. No, the law cannot do that. It does not do that. The law, when there's violations, the law then threatens and the law then punishes violators. In those old covenant laws, in the first part of your Bible, God, God told the Jews to do some things. And, and some of those laws back there in the early part of those Bibles, some of those laws are also for us. Laws like the Ten Commandments. God's moral law for all of mankind. God telling us there to do some things. And, and listen, if you fail to uphold God's laws, like these people here, if you fail to uphold God's Ten Commandments in your life, and all of us have failed to uphold God's Ten Commandments, Well, God's laws, they don't then show you mercy. They don't then just back up and say, oh, I was kidding. You can do whatever you want as a human being. I was joking about those Ten Commandments. That's fine. Violate them all you want because, yeah, that's just fine. God's law does not do that. No, when there are violations of God's law, His holy law, when there are violations of even one of the Ten Commandments, and we've broken all of them, when there are violations of God's law, God's law then threatens. God's law then brings punishment on the violators. God's laws, they they, they don't show mercy. They're pretty pretty black and white. Obey and you're blessed. Disobey and, and you're cursed. You fail to toe the line with God's law, violate even one Ten Commandment in the law. Kind of like Nehemiah here begins to threaten, begins to curse, begins to beat, begins to pull hair. You are missing the mark. You are not towing the line. The law in and of itself, it cannot and it does not show mercy to those who fail. In John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, it's an allegory of the Christian life. The main character, Christian, at one point in the book, he was talking with his friend, Faithful, and Faithful was telling Christian uh, about this time when this man came running up behind him. And Faithful said this about this man who came running up behind him. He said, so soon as this man overtook me, well, he was but a word and a blow, for down he knocked me. He laid me for dead, Faithful says. But when I was a little come to myself, again, I asked him, wherefore he served me so, and with that he struck me another deadly blow, and and beat me down backward. So I laid his foot as dead. And when I came to myself again, I cried in mercy. But he said, I know not how to show mercy. And with that, he knocked me down again. And Christian then says this to faithful, that man that overtook you was Moses. He spares none. Neither does he know how to show mercy to those that transgress his law. The law of God in and of itself, it cannot and it does not show mercy to those who fail. And the problem is that we've all failed. Now, you weren't born back in the Old Testament days. You don't have a lot of those Jewish laws on top of you today. But you do have God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, on top of you. And we've all failed. All of us have failed violating God's laws. And because of our failure, the law has not blessed us. The law has cursed us. Galatians 3.10 Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The entire human race, because of our violations of God's law, His Ten Commandments, the entire human race has been cursed. The law, the law now, listen, in your life as a sinful human being, I'm sorry, but God's law now, In your natural born fallen state, God's law is all earthquake and thunder to you. Threatening, beating, cursing, pulling out hair, saying to you, you have missed the mark. You are a sinner. You have violated God's holy commands. 
Man, these people here, they tried to obey God's old covenant laws, but they just couldn't. And you look at this chapter as the, as, as the historical events of the entire Old Testament now come to a close here. This long Old Testament drama scene, it now ends here. And what do we see? Brian Chappell says that here in Nehemiah 13, a dark curtain is now being lowered. A dark curtain now being lowered, not just on these people here, but really being lowered on all of mankind. And what does this dark curtain say here at the end of Nehemiah as it descends on all of mankind? It says one word, I believe. It says failure. It says failure. Strike three, you're out. Every single human being, you, me, all of us, failed to uphold God's holy and just and good laws. What do we get here at the end of Nehemiah? There is no joy in Mudville. The entire human race has struck out. The entire human race took a big swing at God's old covenant laws, trying to obey them, and we missed. We failed. And that's the end of Nehemiah. The end of the entire Old Testament ends in darkness. Failure. Strike three, you're out. The curse of God's law is on its way in your life. Here's the beautiful thing. This Old Testament scene that just ended here, well, that's not the end of the Bible drama. It's really just an intermission. Man, after the events here in Nehemiah 13, there would be 400 years of silence. For the next 400 years in human history, nothing was recorded in the Bible at all. 400 years of a dark curtain over mankind saying failure. But after that long intermission, man, it was almost like this dark curtain slowly began to rise again. And what do you see now on the stage right in front of you? It's just a baby. It's just a tiny little baby. The eternal Son of God in human flesh. Why was this baby here? Why was Jesus here? He was here to do what we had failed to do. The Bible says that Jesus was born under God's law. He became a human being and was born as a human being in order that he might then be obligated as a human being to fulfill all of God's holy law like you and me. He took our place as a human being. He became obligated like you and me to obey God's holy law. And he did it. A sinless life, the Bible says, a perfect obedience. But then on the cross, Jesus took our disobedience upon himself. Jesus stepped in and he took for us the punishment of God's law. Do you know what Jesus took for us there on the cross? He basically took all the punishments that you see in Nehemiah 13. He basically took them all and much worse. Jesus on the cross, he was threatened by God's law for our sin. Jesus on the cross, he was cursed. He was beaten by God's law for our sin. Jesus on the cross had his hair pulled out by God's law for our sin. Isaiah 50 verse 6 I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Every last bit of the curse of God's law. Everything that's kind of foreshadowed here, I think, in Nehemiah's confrontation. Every bit of the curse of God's law, all the punishments of God's law, and and, and much, much worse than we see here in Nehemiah 13, what Jesus absorbed 
all of it, in order that every sinner who would then trust in and follow him might be delivered from that curse. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Do you remember the passage we just read from Pilgrim's Progress? (laughs) The one faithful talking to Christian about how Moses the law had beat him down without mercy. Here's the rest of the story. Faithful had said this. He said, so when I came to myself again, I cried to him, Moses the law, I cried for mercy. But he said, I know not how to show mercy. And with that, he knocked me down again. And then he goes on to say, he had doubtless made an end of me, but one came by and bid him forbear, made him cease. And Christian said, who was that that bid him forbear? And Faithful said this, I did not know him at first, but as he went by, I perceived the holes in his hands and in his side. And then I concluded that he was our Lord. God's old covenant law, it can't show mercy to those who fail. God's law was not intended to show mercy to those who fail. You know why God gave His old covenant laws? Here's one of the primary reasons. So that we could see that we're sinners. So that we could see how sinful we are. It's very easy to think when you look at yourself just in any old mirror that you're a pretty good person. Well, once you start looking at yourself in the mirror of God's law, you begin to see how much you failed to meet His standards and you realize you're not a good person. You're a sinner. And then you hear the thunder and the earthquake of God's law. You know, you know now that those who fail, that those who disobey God's law will not escape judgment. There's nothing that you can do. The curse is coming for you. An eternal curse is coming for you. The law cannot. It does not show mercy. But Jesus can. And he does. And the law that is beating you down, showing that you that you're a sinner, that you're a failure. Well, every sinner who looks and cries out to God for mercy. Well, the one who has pierced hands and a pierced side and pierced feet then puts his hand in between you and the law and he absorbs every bit of curse that has been aimed at you. Jesus takes it all. Punishment of God's law, the curse of God's law has been absorbed Entirely by this merciful Savior for everyone who cries to Him for mercy. Man, at the end of Nehemiah, the human race is struck out. Jesus didn't strike out. He did not strike out. A bottom of the ninth, bases uh, loaded, two out, grand slam. And here's the thing. For every sinner who truly trusts in Him and clings to Him for mercy, that grand slam is yours. His perfect obedience is then credited to you by God the Father. God looks at you and says, well done. You fulfilled my law in Christ. Do you realize that once you're in Christ by faith, the law can now look at you, but the law can no longer curse you. The law can only look at you now and say, I bless you because you did it. All of it in Christ. And man, every single time you sin now as a Christian, as a Christ follower, every time you sin, Jesus now steps forward and he says, that sin is mine. I I took the punishment for that sin right there upon myself. The law can no longer condemn you. My child, go in peace. Go in the power of my love. Go in the power of my forgiveness. Go now and sin no more. And it's the power of the cross that helps you then to walk in holiness before God. You know one thing we didn't have time to cover this morning, regretfully? Nehemiah's prayers in this chapter. He's prayed all the way through this book, and Nehemiah prays all the way through this chapter. Do you know that four different times he uses the same word? You know what word it is? Remember. Remember, oh God. Remember, oh God. Remember, oh God. And the entire book of Nehemiah ends with this little simple prayer, verse 31. Remember me, oh God, for good. 
And man, Nehemiah was praying for himself there. He's like, oh God, remember all I've done for these people and please reward me with good. Reward me accordingly. But do you realize that if you trust in Christ today, Jesus prays that same prayer for you? Every single time you sin as a Christ follower, Jesus looks at his Father and he says, remember me, oh God, for her good, for his good. Remember me, oh God. Remember my work on the cross for their good. Remember me, oh God. He's interceding without ceasing for you, Christian. And God the Father will always remember Jesus for your good. So you can trust him. He loves you. The message of the book of Nehemiah is this. We need a better builder. And Jesus is the better builder. May God simply give you the faith to trust in and follow Christ. May you be forgiven through faith in Christ. May you always be watched over by the good shepherd who loves his people. May God give us faith in Jesus Christ, the much better builder. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your grace, your word. Thank you, Father, for the book of Nehemiah. Thank you, Father, that even Nehemiah points us to Christ. We love and we bless you, Father. We pray, Father, for faith in this room. Lord, it is so easy to say we believe these things, and yet the belief does not go deep in our hearts. Will you please drive this faith deep in our hearts that we might, we might believe, Father God, we might believe that we truly are forgiven people in Christ, that your mercy is upon us, that we are loved with an infinite love, that you are steadfast in your love toward us, you're gentle and tender in your love toward us, Father God. Give us faith to believe to trust in Christ, the better builder. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We get the opportunity at the end of the book of Nehemiah to take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper reminds us of the death of Jesus. The, the bread represents his body, which was broken for sinners like you and me. The cup represents the blood of Jesus, which was spilled for our forgiveness. Man, this supper right here, it reminds you, if you're in Christ by faith, it reminds you that Jesus has taken the full punishment of God's law for you. If you trust in Christ today, you're no longer under the curse of God's law. No longer forever. He loves you. Jesus took it for you because of his perfect obedience because of his perfect obedience, you are now found to be perfectly obedient in Christ. The law looks at you and says you are blessed. Remember that as you receive the Lord's Supper today. We practice open communion here so you don't have to be a member of this church to receive the Lord's Supper. You do need to be trusting in Christ. A simple, living, childlike faith in Christ and you're seeking to follow Christ, this Lord's Supper is for you. If that's not you, you, you don't truly trust in Christ, you've not turned away from your sin, I would just ask you not to take the Lord's Supper uh, today. We have four stations up front here that you can see. In just a minute, you can come up and receive both the bread and the cup. Go ahead and return to your seats. And in just a minute, we'll take both of them together. If you can't come up front here, I'd ask you just to raise your hand. Pastor Thomas and I will be walking around and we'll be happy to serve you at your seat. So if Pastor Thomas and the, the servers will come up front at this time, Pastor Thomas will, will bless.